Started a new series last week um, with a, a new book, which is the book of Ruth. Yes, we spent about 16 weeks total on uh, the book of Judges. And um, just to confess to you that Judges was a hard book to preach. I mean, because it was a rough book. I mean, it's a world where everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And what are you going to get? You're going to get a mess. And that's exactly what the book of Judges was. It was a mess for 300 years. It was a mess. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And God sent deliverers to do what? To pull them out of that mire. But then what did the deliverers do? They did what was right in their own eyes as well in the process. As soon as they had the positions, as soon as they even had the anointings, they did what was right in their own eyes in the process. So for 300 years, it was difficult times. Ruth is not after the book of Judges. Ruth, the book of Ruth, is in the middle of the book of Judges. There's a story of Naomi, there's a story of Ruth, and there's a story of Boaz, and that story is located right in the middle of a world that's gone sour. Right in the middle of a world that is struggling. You know what the book of Ruth is? It's the answer. It's the answer of how to behave, how to walk, and how to act in a struggling world. It's an answer that actually pulls everybody out of the mire. Remember last week we went through the whole story and at the end of the book, what does the book of Ruth even point to? Points to a baby being born and then points to King David, which who points to Jesus. It is a gospel story lived out in people's lives. It's history. It's something that took place, lived out in people's lives. And all of a sudden God says, that is what I want you to look at. Because that is what's going to change the world, and that is what is connected to what's going to take place 1,200 years after the book of Ruth, which is Jesus Christ. We're going to read almost the first chapter. It's a longer chapter, chapter, but I was thinking this morning, I think I'll just stand up and read the whole book and then just sit down and say, go home. <laughs> it carries a lot of power. So let's just read first almost the first chapter in the days of judges when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land and a man of bethlehem in judah went to sojourn in the country of moab he and his wife and his two sons the name of the man was elimelech and the name of his wife was naomi the name of his two sons was malon and chilion they are ephrathites from bethlehem in judah they went into the country of moab and remained there but elimelech and a husband of naomi died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. One was named Orpah. The other one was named Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return to the country of Moab. Turn to the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she left, so she set out from the place where she was with, she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go, return each of you to his mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you his favor and rest, each of you in the house of your husband's. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? 
Have I yet in sons in my womb that you may become their husbands? Turn back, my two daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to the people and to their gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to return from following you. For where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that, she was determined to go with her. She said, no more. So as we look in this first part of the chapter, we see a massive amount of suffering that has taken place. First thing we see is it's in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, everybody does what is right in their own eyes. That is an ugly, ugly world. But they leave where everybody's doing right in their own eyes because there's no food. There's a famine that has taken place. So they go to Moab, which is a completely different country. Naomi and Elimelech and Naomi go to Moab and her two sons. Because it's, it's, they're trying to find life. They're trying to find food. They're trying to pull out of a world that is, that is not being generous to them. And in, in that process, more suffering takes place. Why? Because Elimelech dies. Leaves Naomi into, as a widow. But at least she's got two sons still that will be able to take care of her. And those two sons have daughter-in-laws. But then what took place? The two sons ended up dying. Which leaves two daughter-in-laws. Which leaves kind of a very difficult situation. The reason why it's a difficult situation is because there's no more kids that are going to be produced. There's no more kids that are going to be produced. And last week we talked about the strength of, of you as an individual, the strength of you as a family, the strength of you surviving a long time really determines on your family that you have back in those days. Because if you have a large family, you have large economics. In fact, if you look on the hill and who's got the biggest home, it's not the CEO of a company, it's really who has the most children because there's a labor world. And if you have a whole bunch of children, a whole bunch of males, sons, what takes place, they bring a lot of dollars in and everybody's fed. And so what takes place is the, the moms are fed, the grandmas are fed because they're all living, all living together. The great grandmas are fed. Retirement takes place in the older because the younger generation comes up and makes sure that the entire family is fed. There's also safety in a home. Why? Because there's lots of people in the home. People are not going to go into a home, steal things where there's lots of sons, lots of boys. There's safety in the country, just in a sense that when you have more kids, what takes place is you can keep the enemy out. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah's situation looks hopeless. But it really looked hopeless for Ruth in particular because she was in Moab. She can't have any more husbands. I mean, she can't have any more kids. She can't have another husband. She can't have any more kids. She is dependent in a different country, in a different country, completely and entirely dependent with nothing but daughter-in-laws. But if they remarry, what's going to take place? Those husbands of hers are not going to be able to take care of her or even want to take care of her. She had to go back. She had to go back 
to Judah. It's a 50-mile walk. She starts walking back. It's given that the two daughter-in-laws, they follow her. Just, just a given statement. Yeah, Orpah and Ruth are going to follow her because you really don't question that. You stick to close together as family. You don't question it. But there was a person questioning it, and it was actually Naomi. The 50-mile walk, and as she's walking, and she starts to question it. My life is over. My life is doomed. I would die at a young age because I can't work in the fields. I cannot provide. I can only pull scraps that are out here in the fields. But what happens when I get too old? You just die young. My life is over. I will not have any any um, children anymore. It's gone. But behind me, there's two individuals their life isn't over yet. In fact, the only suffering that they've gone through right now is they, they lost, Naomi is saying this, they lost my two sons. They lost their husbands. But they're still in a country, if they stay in Moab, they're still in a country where they'll be okay. They can find another one. It's easy. They can build their families. They can have retirement. They, they're going to be okay. So as Naomi is walking back, she turns around to the two girls, Orpah, and she turns us around to Ruth. And she says, go home. Turn around, go back. Turn around, go back. We see some statements that take place. One is in verse 6. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return of you to your mother's house. If you read in the Hebrew language, that's a misquote. You don't talk about mother's house. You go to the father's house. The father's house is where the meat's at. The father's house is where the strength's at. What Naomi's doing is she's saying, Go back. To your bearing years. Go back and have children that you need to make required in life. Go back. Return to your mother's house. May the Lord, she's even praying for them, may the Lord deal kindly with you. May you have peace. May you have rest. Why will you go with me? Have I yet two sons in my womb? I have nothing. I have nothing. You can still have it. You can still have a life. You have suffered. Suffer no more. And that was what she's telling them. Suffer no more. And when we see this passage, we see tears that are taking place. You see two waves of tears that are taking place in this passage. Of like, no, Ruth, Naomi, we love you. We cannot go back. But then you all say, well, we have to go back. Because literally going back is a no-brainer. I mean, Think about this, just from even an American perspective or a 21st um, century perspective. You are suffering, but you can get out of it if you go that way. You are suffering, or you can go into more suffering. (laughs) I mean, think about that. You are suffering, but there's a way out. You are suffering, but step deeper into it. Yes, it's a no-brainer. Well, what kind of suffering are they stepping into? In your notes, you'll just see some comments. And this is just in the last two chapters of Judges. This is what they're stepping into. And remember that they are Moabites because there's going to be racial discrimination against them, violence against them, even as a result. But this is what they're suffering. According to Judah, 17, they're 1 through 13. There's lying, there's stealing, there's cheating, there's false religion. There's religious deceptions, meaning that even the religious people have gone bad. <laughs> It's ugly, there's selfishness, there's greed, there's covetousness, 
even with the priesthood and with the ministries. And that is just 13 verses in Judges 17. Judges 19, we go through eight verses. Immorality, drunkenness, and partying just in the eight verses. Then we're going to go through two verses. You see extreme prejudice and discrimination. And you have Ruth and Orpah that are both Moabites. There's going to be massive discrimination. Usually when, when um, immigrants go to another place, they go to find a better place, not a worse place to go to. And that's what these girls are being faced with. I could find a better place over here, but if I go and immigrate to this, it's actually a worse place. Again, it's a no-brainer. In eight verses here in chapter 19, you see homosexuality, you see sexual perversion, you see brutality, you see rape, you see lawlessness, you see violence, you see murder. Judges 21 through 48, you see national division and disgrace. You see a civil war that takes a tribe of Israel completely out. I mean, he just wiped the tribe of Benjamin completely out. In um, Judges 21, you see deception and terrible abuse of human rights and national leaders. I mean, you see an absolute mess. And what does Orpah do? She has a little bit of common sense and says, I'll go find my wife, my life. I'll go find my life. I'll go find my life. She did it with tears because she loved Naomi. But what does Ruth do? Ruth has had suffering. Is she going to step into more suffering after she's had suffering? I mean, she does. She's had suffering, and she says, I will do more. I will do more. Naomi, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people are my people. Your God are my God. Where you die, I die. I have a way out. But I'm not taking it. I'm going this direction instead. You ever ask the question, why? <laughs> why did Ruth do that? <laughs> why? I mean, what spurred her to do that? To have suffering and not go to the way out, but have suffering and go more into it. What spurred her? You know, we can often think of there's only you know three people in the the, the, the story, so we can kind of locate the three people. Was it Ruth that all of a sudden inside her character just started to shine? And as a result of her character shining, says, you know what, Naomi? Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Was that her character that was blowing out of her, saying this is going to happen? I don't think it was her character that lit that spark, that made her go, I am giving my life away for you. I don't think it was her character that was just inside. We can ask the question, was it God? Was it God the one that was stirring her? Was God the one that was pushing her? Now, we can spiritualize everything. And we can even look at this, and yes, God could be in the corners. But we do need to note that these three ladies are having struggles with God right now as they're walking back. What do you mean they're having struggles with God? It was because Naomi's the leader of the charge, and she says it. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. <laughs> Who's she accusing her suffering on? God's hand has caused my suffering. But then she goes even on in verse 29. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and who sent me back empty? God sent me back empty. The Lord has tested me, or has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Who is she accusing? This is Naomi speaking. Who is she accusing? She's accusing God 
And she's saying, have you seen my God, Ruth? And Ruth is saying, your God, my God. I mean, is that what is just sparking her towards that? Um, and we can spiritualize and say, yeah, it's, God does do it. But right now, and they're suffering, they're struggling. What started the spark that made her go from here, suffering, to extreme suffering? I believe it was Naomi. I believe that Naomi started this barn. You know what she did? She looked at Ruth, and she looked at Orpah. Your life is more important than mine. Your happiness is more important than mine. I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to die. I don't want you to come die with me. I'm going over here, and I'm going to be barren, and I'm going to be homeless, I'm going to be poor, I'm going to be a widow. You have a chance at life. And I'm willing to lay down my desire for you. I'm willing to put everything down and say, you first rather than me. You first rather than me. In my opinion, in reading the passage, it was a spark that she could not control. So much to the point that you could even be mad at God, Naomi. But you have a God inside of you that is so powerful that you have now stood above the entire world in the book of Judges. Everybody does what is right in your own eyes and you will not do what is right in your own eyes. You will do what is right in somebody else's. I don't even care about going back to Moab because I've never seen that love before in my life. And you're doing it to me. And the life that I want to live is a life next to that love. I could go back and I could have children. I could go back and I could have wealth. I don't want it. I want to live that life next to that love. And I want to know the God that has put that love inside of you. Even the God that you're yelling at, I want to know what that love God has put inside of you. Set a spark. The spark is I lay down my life so you can live. The spark that Hollywood is making millions of dollars on. Every single romance movie that has ever taken place in the world is what? I mean, I have two daughters and I have a wife. I've watched a whole bunch of romance movies. And they're all the same. I'm going to lay down my life so you can live. I'm going to lay down my time. I'm going to sacrifice. And, and, and then they have a fight in the middle. It always happens. There's a fight in the middle. And after they have a fight in the middle, don't worry. It's, they, we won't worry about the fight anymore. We're going to be all right. And we're going to live happily ever after. And, and, but that's what the whole movie is about. Then we can, men can laugh at that, but that's what every war movie's about too. I'm gonna die for my love. I'm gonna lay down my life for my love. I'm gonna sacrifice. Why is Hollywood making millions of dollars on it? Because it is tapped into a heart of our greatest desire that somebody would look at you and lay their life down so you can live. That's why it's there. That's why it's there. That's why we're hungry for it. And then all of a sudden, we see it. That love controls us. Love ruled us. I mean, you think about it, it ruled Ruth. I mean, she could have had happiness. No, forget it. I don't care. I'm going there instead. Why? Because that love is drawing her towards that direction. I don't want wealth over here. I want to be connected to that kind of love. I want to be connected with a God that could even have that kind of love. Because that's what I long for, literally as a human being, 
And every single one of us in the entire room and every single one of us in this entire world longs for it as a human being as well. There's another story where this love has all of a sudden just exploded into the world and it's given. I just want to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Jesus has died on the cross. Taught all the way through. You can't get to heaven without me. There's a sacrifice for sin and you can't do it. You know what I'm going to do? He told his disciples, I'm going to die in your stead. I'm going to die in your stead. I'm going to give everything I have so you can absolutely live for an eternity. I'm going to give everything I have so you can have joy that is overfulling. I'm going to give everything you have so you can look at me face to face and have life. And then he went to the cross. He died. For who? For you. For me. He went to the grave to say that, that he is dead. Say he paid it completely full. But then he rose again. And then his disciples and all the people for 40 days looked at him and say, I cannot believe what just happened. I am loved not even by a man but a man that rose from the dead and he said he was God. Therefore, he is God and God did what? Went all the way to the grave for me. Laid it all down. So here we have book of Acts. Peter's like, what do we do with this? (laughs) As they're completely shocked. And Pentecost took place when the Holy Spirit showed up. Somebody had to grab the microphone, so Peter did. What does he say? He says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held down. Thousands of people were listening to that. And what was people's response? People's response was in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart. (laughs) It just like pierced them. Everything that Jesus said is now true. And he did it all and paid the price. God loves me. I mean, cut specifically to the heart. I was reading, just reading in my daily reading, and I was reading about John the Baptist. And John's Baptist words is like, you know, hey, you know, I'm a guy. Don't look at me. I just baptize you with, with water. <laughs> Look at Jesus, because what? He baptizes you with fire. What does that mean? What is fire? Fire is, oh my goodness, I can't believe what he just did for me. Fire is God just gave me everything my heart has ever desired himself. A sacrificial love that says, this is who I am. That's going to make me. That's going to build me. That's going to send me. I cannot believe that. They were cut to the heart to the point that they said, Peter, according to the passage, what do we do? And he says, what? Repent. 
Repent. Well, what does repent mean? Repent comes with a dynamics of word that literally changes your mind on who your God is of your life. It's something like, I cannot believe this happened. It changed Ruth's mind. I can't believe Naomi just did that. And she gives her life completely away to it because her mind was changed. Her heart was changed. Her, her, her actions, everything was it's like, I cannot believe this. So he says, repent. Change your mind on who the God is of your life. And you're not in it anymore. What's a synopsis of repent? I mean, if you look at the word, give us a, a synopsis of repent. Just the best synopsis you could possibly give, I think, is where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Where your God is, your Father is my Father. Where you die, I die. That's a synopsis, literally, of, a, of repentance that's taking place as they are literally cut to the quick. And then he gives the next command. Next command that we gloss over, because we live in the 21st century, Be baptized. We do uh, three different baptisms that take place here every year. And one takes place at Lake Charles, and then we do one in Easter, and we do one at Christmas, and it takes place right here. And what do they look like? This is what they look like. is uh, An individual will come up here, and they'll give a testimony, and uh, they'll say what God has done in their life. And then they walk over to the tank, and then they walk up into the tank, and what we do is we put them into the water, and then they come out of the water. And then what the instructions that I give is make sure that they walk out that door right there because it's really embarrassing when they walk out here and then they have to walk out in front of everybody wet. So if you just take a left really fast, you can get around the corner and be able to go back. But in this process that everybody, sorry, I give you all the details, but in the process of doing this, everybody's just celebrating. Everybody's excited. Everybody's happy. Why? Because there's a new life. There's a new birth. But what are you doing? You're going into water symbolizing I'm dying with Christ. I'm coming up and I'm living with him. I am, you go, I go. You lodge, I lodge. You die, I die. And then you get up. Everybody cheers. And it is exciting. Absolutely exciting. And then everybody walks out the door and we go home all excited. But what took place in the 20, um, during the time of Acts is they would probably have a, just pretend a church like this and they would say, where you go, I go, God. Where you die, I die. Where you lodge, I lodge. They would then come up out of the water, and then they would walk out, and on the streets are soldiers that says, who got baptized? Because if you say anything out of your mouth, I'll kill you for it. They literally had love so powerful that after they made the statement of baptizing them, they went into extreme suffering. Extreme suffering. You can have a way out back then. Don't get baptized. <laughs> That's a way out. But they had a love that was too big. And this love was from God. So they said, no, we have to. We have to because it's everything. It's everything. So they had to do it. And do you know what they happened with the soldiers? Is they take it. <laughs> you can kill me, but you can't kill this love that I have. You can't kill this love that I receive. And I don't care how even tough my life is, I still have this love that controls me, that sends me, that moves me, that makes me, because I have God that is behind this love. And there's not nobody on the planet could take it away from me. That is the power of a sacrificial life. We see it in Ruth. Naomi's, or Ruth's life was moved towards Naomi and was given. But then we see it on a, that's a micro level. Now we see it on a macro level. We see it from God. <laughs> not, not, not man. God literally 
gives it to us. Let's look at our notes. Number one in our notes. I just want to walk through this passage. Christ's love does what? It controls us. Ruth was controlled by Naomi's love. But what is Paul the Apostle? What was he controlled by? Controlled by literally Christ's love. And he spoke in that way. I went hiking um, down the Pacific Crest Trail a couple years ago um, in California. And, um, and you meet a lot of people on the trail. And when you meet a lot of people on the trail, you, you get to you know, talk with them, work with them. And, and you know, it's, it's fun meeting people. And, and, and you look rough and you stink like crazy. And you have, I had a big old beard. And I had showered for like seven days or something like that. I've been on the trail for three weeks. So it's been pretty ugly. And I saw this beautiful little romantic couple that were sitting right down at the base of Mount Whitney. And I was going to go climb on Mount Whitney you know, um, the next day. And I thought I'd just go ask them, you know, if they knew where the trail was. And so I went up and asked them and, and, um, and they didn't know where the trail was, but the lady looked at me and says, you have a wedding ring. I don't know why she thought that was kind of surprising. I guess I kind of looked pretty bad, which I did look pretty bad. And I said, yeah, I've got a, I've got a wedding ring. So where's your wife? I said, oh, you know, my wife is, you know, she's, she's at home. And, and well, how long have you been married? Said, yeah, I've been married for 26 years. She's going, Okay, this, this guy's, you know, not just from a jungle, it's, you know, thinking about those things. She says, where do you work? I said, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and she goes, ah, we're Christians too. <laughs> I mean, I said, for a surprise. And, uh, and then she started asking a whole bunch of questions with me. And I said, could I just sit down because my feet were sore because I knew this was going to take a long time. And the first question she asked me was a deep question. Remember, I'm on my break. This is like my sabbatical, and I have to answer these questions. I, I love the questions. They're just amazing. This is the question she asked me. She said, what is the largest misconception in the church today, according to your opinion? What is the largest misconception in the church today, according to your opinion? I look at her and say, that's a hard question. <laughs> and she goes, I know, and I want to know your answer. And you know what I told her? Because we don't understand the love of God. We don't, can't grasp it. We can't grasp it, and therefore it doesn't control us. We can't grasp it, therefore it doesn't use us. We can't grasp it so it doesn't send us. We can't grasp it so it doesn't make us. And if we could just actually grasp the love of God, we would be pierced to the heart like they were 2,000 years ago. When they heard nothing about God came, God died for you, and God rose. We're in the book of Judges. How are we supposed to live in the book of Judges? I mean, that's everybody does what is right in their own eyes. It's a horrible world. How are they supposed to live? <laughs> lay, your down, lay down your life so others will live. That's how you're supposed to live in the book of Judges. That's the way it's supposed to change it. We're in the 21st century. We're in a rough world. How are we supposed to live? <laughs> we have the one, which is God, lay down his life so we can live, so we can do what? Lay down our lives for other people. His love controls us only when we understand it, only when we study it, only when we think about it, only when we desire it, only when we get hungry for it. What does this love look like? I have a prayer journal that I actually have to read 
to remind me of his love. I'm sorry, I'm confessing. I have to read this to literally remind me of his love. And what I end up doing is I end up praying it. And the reason why is because I want to know it. I want to know it. There's one prayer in here in particular. I didn't put my marker in, so I'm going to find it here. It says this. Christ was all anguish that I might have all joy. He was cast off that I might be brought in. He was trodden down as an enemy so that I might be welcome as a friend. He surrendered to hell's worst so I could have heaven's best. He was stripped that I might be clothed. He was wounded that I might be be healed a thirst. He was tormented that I might be comforted. He made ashamed that I might inherit eternal glory. He entered into darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept so all the tears might be wiped from my eyes. He ground, he was ground that I might have endless song. He endured all pain that I might have unfading health. O Father, who spared not thine only Son, that you mightest spare me. The cry of every single person's heart is, I want somebody to die for me. I want somebody to love me in that way. And do you know what the most amazing thing is? We open up the Bible and it's right there. But what does it do to us? Second Corinthians says, this is Paul speaking, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died, therefore everybody's died. Completely controls. I'm looking at the suffering, but I'll step into more for the purpose of making it so someone else doesn't suffer because I've received it. It's not about what we can get from God. We don't live in that world what we can get from God. You know what the world's about and what the Bible's about? It's what God has already given us. And once we see it, it controls us. Christ's love sends us. Naomi was sent by Ruth's love. Are we sent by Christ's love? There's a story of James Calvert, and he was sent by Christ's love. James Calvert was a, a, missional that was gonna, a missionary that was going to go to the Fiji Islands. The Fiji um, people were, were cannibals. <laughs> they, were, they were cannibals, and no one's ever walked on that island. And if they walked on the island, what was going to happen? They're going to die. I mean, that's just what's going to take place. They were going to get martyred. And uh, so they got on a ship, uh, a boat, not a ship, a boat, and there's four people with him that's on this boat. They got on this boat, and there's one person that is bringing the boat over to the Fuji Islands, knowing that when they step foot on the island, they're probably going to end up dying. And uh, the captain of the, the boat um, looked at James and said, you guys are stupid. <laughs> you know what's going to happen the second you guys stand on that island? Is you're all going <laughs> to die. And what did James Galbert say? He said, look at all of us. You need to know something about us. We died before we got on your boat. He went to the island, and we went to the island. They didn't end up killing him. He ended up having a relationship with him. He then went back to England, and he translated the Bible in their language and brought it back to the Fiji Islands that's taken place. He had a love inside of him that was sending him because God says that love can be passed on, moving him to a point where I'll lay down my life so others will live. John three sixteen. by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Number three, Christ's love fills us. This issue of suffering is huge. 
It's huge, and every religion has to answer it. I just want to say that. Every religion has accountability to answer it because there's a God. If you have a religion, there's a God somewhere. You have to answer the question of the suffering. Hinduism answers it this way. Learn from it. Suffering is there. Nobody's going to deny it. You need to learn from it. Buddhists say what? It's tough, but you need to accept it. Karma says what? You need to pay for it. Fatalism says what? You just need to endure it. Just, just get through it. Survive it. Secularism says what? Says avoid it. Islam says what? Islam says you need to pass a test. And that's what suffering is. It's a test. But if you grab a hold of Allah, you can then rise above it. Are you ready to take that test? What does Christianity say about suffering? Christianity says that our God entered into it and then rose again and tells us to do what? Follow his leading so that the world will be saved. Ephesians 3.19 And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you know the love of Christ that even goes beyond your mind, you can do what according to that passage? You could be filled with the fullness of God. The reason why, at a micro level, the reason why Ruth followed Naomi is because she saw it and it was strong enough to fill her up inside of her suffering. That's a micro level. But the macro level with God, think about this, the macro level with God, understanding the fullness of what has been given to you, understand the, the massiveness of love that has been given to you, that's even surpassed our knowledge according to that, will fill you up no matter what takes place. It did the disciples. No matter what took place, it still filled them up. Why? Because they were filled with a cup of God, even when they lost their whole life. Ruth saw Naomi's love and gave her life to it. Yes, the biggest question, do we see Christ's love? And are we going to give our lives to it? We want to see it more. Number four, always read, pray, study, meditate, concentrate on the love of God. It will send you, move you, make you, transform you for the purpose of changing the world around you. Dark time in the book of Judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Days are going to start shifting in Judges, and you're going to see that, because we're probably going to go through First Samuel, Second Samuel, and we're going to go through those books. And as we're going through those books, you're going to see a shift that comes out. The shift took place in Ruth. I am not going to do what is right in my own eyes. I'm going to do what is right in God's eyes. I'm going to do what is right in others' eyes. And the world has changed. We can take that challenge today. We live in a tough world in the 21st century. What are we supposed to do? What's supposed to take place? Study on that love of God. Because if you see it, you won't do what is right in your own eyes. You'll do what is right in his. And you know what he's going to tell you? Do what is right in others in the process so they can live. God, I just thank you for the book of Ruth. And I thank you, God, for making it a story that we can completely and entirely understand. God, your love surpasses knowledge. God left heaven, came to earth, and died on the cross. And God, it is a, it's something that's difficult for us to even grasp. Because it's something beyond our knowledge. But you give us this love story, God, right in the middle of the book of Judges. Ruth and Naomi. 
And we can look at it and say, well, you got two humans responding to an unconditional love. And we see it unfold in that book. We love the story. But then the end of the story, it points, like the entire Bible does, right to the story of you and what you've done for us. I just pray that we'll be individuals, we'll be a people, we'll be a church, we'll be a country, we'll be a nation that would seek after to understand that love so we can be changed, transformed, sent, controlled, motivated and moved by it. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.